History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia Episode 64, Fight to the End. This is actually take two of this episode. I recorded the whole thing, saved it, came back to it, and discovered the new recording software had not, in fact, saved the file. So here we are, on the old recording software, making the best of it. A week later. Last time, we explored the slow growth of another Egyptian revolt in the early reign of Artaxerxes I. Inaros, a descendant of Libyan pharaohs conquered by Cambyses way back in 525, was the prince of rebels, ruling from the city of Morea in the western Nile Delta's marshes and swamps. From about 464 to 460, Inaros moved at a snail's pace with limited support from the Egyptian people and basically no support from the nobility. He had a small army of mercenaries, but that was just about it. Things sped up dramatically when Inaros entered into an alliance with Athens. He promised the imperialist Greeks a share of the kingdom of Egypt, Whatever that actually means, it must have been a pretty good deal. Because not only did the Athenians help Inaros break a stalemate with the Persians and kill the local satrap, but they also committed troops to the Egyptian cause even after the outbreak of the First Peloponnesian War against Sparta. 
We left off in early 459 BCE with a detachment of Athenian ships aiding the rebel army as they besieged the provincial capital at Memphis. Back in more firmly held territory, Artaxerxes had put the western Persian military in the hands of Artabazus, satrap of Phrygia and veteran of the Battle of Plataea, and Megabyzos, satrap of Assyria and guy who just couldn't decide which side of the Artabanus conspiracy he was on, among many other noted accomplishments. We also bid farewell to Themistocles, the architect of the Athenian victory at Salome, who chose death over fighting his fellow Athenians even after all but openly betraying them. Artabazus and Megabyzus were preparing their troops in Cilicia, Cyprus, and Phoenicia, the major naval bases left in Persian hands after 20 years of war with Athens. Given that Diodorus is the only source that mentions Artabazus' involvement, it is possible that the elder satrap held more of an administrative role in preparing for this campaign. Or even that Diodorus is just wrong and he wasn't involved at all. Either way, it's Megabyzus who took the credit and the fame, but that fame came slowly. Around this time, the Athenians patrolling along the coast were joined by a young adventurer from Halicarnassus, this, uh... Herodotus had left his home to see the world. According to the much later Byzantine encyclopedia known as the Suda, Herodotus got swept up in a pro-Athenian revolt against Ligdemus II, the grandson of Artemisia and current tyrant of Halicarnassus. Ligdemus continued to benefit from the support of the Persian government, and so remained loyal even as the Delian League dominated his neighbors. Ligdemus defeated his capital's pro-Athenian party and avoided uprisings in the other four cities under his control. The ringleaders were naturally executed, but some participants, like his own distant cousin Herodotus, had to flee the city. As an avid Athenophile with a desire to see the world, Herodotus joined up with the Athenians during their time in northern Egypt. He did not participate in the assault on Memphis, but took the opportunity to explore Egypt for a few years, before embarking on a life of moving around the Mediterranean and writing his histories. Back in Egypt, it took four years for the Persian response to arrive and rescue their allies behind the walls of the White Castle. Without a doubt, the famous Egyptian fortress was one of three things that allowed the Persians to take so much time to prepare for an invasion of Egypt. So long as Upper Egypt remained loyal, and the small Persian fleet on the Nile was in good repair, the fortress was unassailable. The other two factors were more political. First, the outbreak of hostilities between Athens and Sparta, pulled Athenian resources out of Egypt. Inaros's strategy seems to have hinged on taking Memphis before the eastern delta, and he did not have the manpower to simultaneously besiege Memphis and campaign in the north. 
There must have been raids for money or supplies, but never any kind of full-scale warfare. If the Athenian navy had been fully dedicated to the Egyptian rebellion, Athens could have raided or even occupied territory along the Nile River's many branches and canals almost unopposed, but they were engaged in Greece. Second, Xerxes' reforms in 486 were clearly successful even if we don't know what exactly they were. At least twice, depending on how you count, Egypt had already risen up in a general revolt and ousted the Persian officials along the whole length of the Nile. In 460, most of the Nile Delta remained loyal, even though there were some sympathies for Inaros in the western oases. Upper Egypt was almost entirely unaffected by the rebellion, even after Achaemenes was killed in battle and the province was left without a satrap, most of Egypt continued to operate as subjects of the King of Kings. This gave the Persians valuable time to rebuild the Mediterranean fleet. Diodorus and Theseus both say that the shipyards of the eastern Mediterranean produced 300 ships to invade Egypt. Whether that number is precise or not is not really the question. Based on later military history, it seems unlikely, unless some of those ships sank in storms or were carried across the Sinai and redeployed elsewhere. The important thing is the motif of 300 ships, the default size for a Persian fleet across all of our sources. The Persian navy was back at full strength when Megabyzus and his army set out for Egypt, whatever full strength meant in 460. Most of this fleet was just seizing on a military opportunity while Athens was distracted, as 300 ships couldn't actually sail down the Nile. But Megabyzus took what ships he could south to Memphis, where his army assaulted Inaros' forces, and his navy dispersed the Athenians on the river. Both components of the rebellion suffered heavy losses, but for Inaros and his forces, that meant the rebellion was over. For the Athenians, it meant that they were trapped in the middle of the Nile River as their Egyptian benefactor retreated. The Athenians fled up the river to an island in the middle of the Nile called Prosopotis. The Greeks spent almost an entire year and a half trapped on that island, fortified by their own ships, but unable to escape the Persian blockade. After a few failed attempts to take the island with his navy, Megabyzus ordered his soldiers to start digging canals. A series of channels on one side of the river slowly diverted the Nile until the water levels fell low enough on one side for the army to cross on foot. At some point in the preceding 18 months, the Athenian commander had died in the fighting, and Megabyzus could now offer the survivors a choice. He would take the island by force, with overwhelming numerical superiority, trapping the Greeks inside their own stockade, and killing many on both sides. Or, they could surrender now, and be allowed to live. 
the exhausted Athenians, who had spent almost six years in siege conditions, opted for surrender. While the Athenians were trapped on Prosopotis, the rest of the rebellion had already come to an end. Inaros had been wounded in the fighting at Memphis and fled with what remained of his army to a city called Byblos. By all indications, this is not the Phoenician city with a long history of alliances and subjugation by Egypt, but an Egyptian city sometimes described as Byblos on the Nile. It was there that Inaros and his supporters surrendered to Megabizus in exchange for some level of clemency. Meanwhile, in early 454, the Athenian fleet on the coast finally encountered the renewed Persian fleet. The Athenian fleet, probably in the area of 50 ships, was almost entirely destroyed, save for a small force that was able to break away and flee home to Greece, bearing the bad news. To settle things in Egypt, Megabizus used the authority invested in him by Artaxerxes to install a Persian named Arsimes as the new satrap, this time with no relation to the royal family. Megabizus, Artabazos, and Arsimes were left to determine the fates of their increasingly large number of prisoners. Unlike Xerxes' wrath, destroying the archives and upending old noble families 30 years earlier, this war council took a lighter hand, possibly by necessity. Enaros himself was taken as a hostage, as were 50 Athenians, presumably captives from the naval battle at the Mendesian mouth, or officers who could serve as leverage against Athens. The rest of the rebel forces seem to have been allowed to return home, with a clear understanding that this was mostly Athens' fault. Due in part to the difficulty of controlling or occupying the western marshes, the rebels were allowed to melt back into the swamps, and the mercenaries just seemed to have gone home after their defeat in Memphis. The Greeks, who surrendered at Prosopotis after dragging this war out for an extra year, they got a harsher punishment. They were not imprisoned, enslaved, or executed. They could return to Athens as per the conditions of their surrender but they were not allowed to travel through Egypt. Given that they were encamped on an island south of the Nile Delta, they only really had one option. Megabizus ordered them to go home by way of the Libyan desert. What happened to them after they started walking was not his problem. Only a small number of the Athenian force survived the perilous trek from north-central Egypt, to the Mediterranean, and then west all the way to Cyrenaica, where they finally found merchant ships willing to carry them home. With that, everything in Egypt seemed settled. Inaros and the Greek POWs would be taken back to imperial territory as prisoners. Meanwhile, the Egyptian marshes would return to the antebellum status quo. Amirtaeus, the king of the marshes, continued to rule whatever swampy kingdom he had started with. Up in Morea, Thaneris, the son of Inaros, was allowed to sit on his father's old throne, 
as the most recent heir to the 26th dynasty of pharaohs. From the Persian perspective, this couldn't even have been seen as a major threat. The marshes weren't worth the time and effort to fully subjugate them, and Egypt had just proven that it would support the Persian regime over rebel dynasts. But when Inaros and his fellow captives arrived in the east, they were betrayed. That's all Thucydides really tells us, since he's just summarizing the events between Xerxes' invasion and the Second Peloponnesian War. Theseus blames the Persian about-face on the queen mother, Emestris. According to Theseus, who incorrectly identified Xerxes' brother, Achaemenes, as a son called Achaemenides, Amestris was not satisfied with mere political stability, and demanded retribution over her son's death until her surviving progeny, King Artaxerxes, obliged her. On one hand, the tyrannical, controlling Persian queen is a well-worn trope in Greek literature. And this example is even founded on the false premise that Amestris had lost her son rather than her brother-in-law. On the other hand, this is the exact kind of personal political influence that is most commonly associated with Achaemenid queens, especially the queen mother. The idea that they were pulling strings to become the sole architects of major political events is unrealistic, but the idea that they were able to intervene on personal vendettas is not. Amestris had also just lost her husband and two sons to the power politics of the Persian Empire. She must have known Achaemenes regardless of their actual relationship. Plus, Amestris in particular was remembered across all of the classical authors as a particularly ruthless and vengeful queen, something I discussed back in episode 58. That she could have demanded harsher punishment for Inaros and his allies is not out of the question. But it is equally possible that Artaxerxes, young and still uncomfortable on his own throne even a decade into his reign, may have overruled Megabyzus's initial clemency and given the orders himself. Inaros II, the would-be pharaoh of Egypt, was crucified near a Persian capital, while 50 Greek prisoners were beheaded as punishment for their role in the latest Egyptian uprising. And with that, after nearly a decade of tension and conflict, Artaxerxes was in control of his whole empire for the first time. It was ever so slightly smaller than the one his father had inherited, but it was intact and its power was largely unbroken. I 
I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership all 25 languages for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. The Athenian Empire, their Delian League, was not doing so hot. Territorially, it was remarkably intact given the resentment from some of the island city-states they forced to stay in the League and the ongoing war with Sparta. In fact, just about the only good thing to happen for Athens in 454 BCE was Ligdemus dying in Halicarnassus and the Greeks of the Carian Pentapolis ousting the Persian tyrants in favor of the Delian League. Politically and economically, Athens was starting to slip. The massive losses inflicted in Egypt didn't secure a single benefit for the Athenian state, and the war with the Peloponnesian League was beginning to develop into a stalemate of attrition. Following the defeats in Egypt, the Athenians moved their league treasury from the island of Delos, where it was founded, to Athens itself, in a naked declaration of political reality. This was, for all intents and purposes, the Athenian Empire. Subject states could not leave, they paid tribute directly to Athens itself, they would back Athens in all its wars, not just those against the Persian Empire. Seems like an empire to me. The next year, still embroiled in this war with Sparta, the Athenians tried to intervene in another regional dispute in Thessaly, northern Greece, where a local king in exile wanted assistance retaking his throne. The Athenian attempt to support this claim was soundly defeated as well. Athens was losing too much face all at once, and needed to bring its wars to a close, if only so they could consolidate their power 
and come back to fight another day. So in 451 BCE, Kimon was recalled from his exile early. Unlike so many other Greek exiles, the architect of the Battle of the Eurymedon and so many of Athens' other conquests did not flee into the open arms of the Persian Empire, possibly fearing that he had done too much damage to the Persians to ever be forgiven. Instead, he was able to return home and negotiate a truce with Sparta. Cimon had fallen out of favor with his fellow Athenians precisely because he was too pro-Spartan, and now they needed his Spartaphilia to save them. Cimon successfully negotiated a five-year armistice with the Spartans before taking control of the Athenian fleet and going to war once again. After almost 50 years of on-and-off conflict between Athens and Persia, both sides were finally open to negotiations, but the Athenians couldn't go into peace talks fresh from a pair of disastrous losses. It just wouldn't be a strong negotiating position. So they did what they did best and started another round of open warfare with the Persians. Once again, their target was the island of Cyprus. The ancient sources don't discuss their motives in depth, but if I had to guess, I'd say the Athenians resumed the campaign they were engaged in before diverting resources to Egypt. I speculated in the last episode that they may have wanted to annex all or part of the island into the Delian League on the basis that it too was Greek. In reality, Cypriot culture was a unique blend of Greco-Phoenician culture, but since when has that mattered? The Persians were clearly aware of Athens' goals too. Artabazus was already stationed on Cyprus with the Persian fleet, and Megabizus was waiting just to the north with an army at the Persian ports in Cilicia. They were expecting the Athenians to make a second attempt on the island, or to begin raiding the coast. Cimon sailed for Cyprus with 200 ships, the full force of the Athenian fleet, where he engaged Artabazos and his ships in the first full-strength open-water confrontation between the Athenian and Achaemenid navies since the Battle of Salome. The Greek sources make this sound like a great Athenian victory, but Diodorus Siculus's description of the actual events paint a different picture. There was no army based on Cyprus, aside from a local garrison. The Persian fleet was there, but if you examine the geography, the Persian fleet kind of had to be near Cyprus at any given time. It was just in between all of the other major ports they had in the Mediterranean. Artabazos and the fleet could act as a deterrent, but the Persian army was in its traditional rendezvous point for any western deployment. This was a setup to deter Athenian raids on Cyprus and have a rapid response to anywhere along the Persian coast. When Cimon arrived at Cyprus, the Persian fleet broke apart quickly. Part of the fleet went east, heading for Phoenicia, 
This might have been a distraction, or an attempt to defend the Levant from potential Athenian raiders. Regardless, a portion of the Athenian fleet broke off to follow them and continue the naval battle in Phoenician waters. The second part of both fleets went north toward Megabyzos' army in Cilicia. Much like the Battle of the Eurymedon, Diodorus describes this as a Persian retreat when, in reality, the fleet had just gone to pick up the army. And like the Battle of the Eurymedon, the Athenians pursued them onto the shore, led by one of Chemon's subordinates called Anaxocrates. Once again, the Persian army and the Athenian landing force squared off on the southern coast of Anatolia. But this was far from the total disaster at the mouth of the Eurymedon. Megabyzus was forced to retreat, but Anaxocrates was killed in battle, and the Athenians withdrew back onto their ships to rejoin the rest of their forces for an invasion of Cyprus. Overall, the Athenians carried the day. They destroyed, disabled, or captured about a third of the Persian fleet and managed to land on the island to begin their campaign. But, by Persian naval standards in the last 20 years, this was an undeniable improvement. The majority of the Mediterranean fleet was still operational. Back on Cyprus, the Athenians launched an assault on the city of Kidion, modern Larnaca. If you remember my previous discussions of Cyprus, you might recall that the island was ruled by ten petty kings in the major cities around the coast of the island. This was still the arrangement in 451, and Kidion was the seat of one of those kingdoms. As the siege dragged on, Chemon divided his forces and sent a second army northeast along the coast towards Salome on Cyprus, not to be confused with the island near Athens. As they went, the Athenians fought and subdued the lesser cities in between. Salome was the seat of another of these kingdoms and the home of the island's main Persian garrison. Obviously, seizing this city and defeating the Persian forces there was a necessity for any Athenian hopes of taking the island, but that was not the only concern. Defeat of any Persian reinforcements may have been enough to break the siege of Kidion, and the Athenians recognized that forcibly conquering every single city would make them very unpopular with the Cypriot people. They also just didn't necessarily have time to campaign around the whole island and consolidate their gains before their truce with Sparta ran out. But if Salome fell, and there was no Persian support on the island at all, the other cities might surrender peacefully. Instead, the Athenians became embroiled in a protracted siege of Salome as well as Kidion, from late 451 to the beginning of 450 BCE. Diodorus' account says that the Athenians launched repeated attacks on the city, suggesting that they were trying to speed up the siege rather than starve the Persians out. Both he and Thucydides 
mention multiple naval battles off the coast of Salome with the Persian navy, suggesting that Megabyzus and Artabazus may have tried lifting the siege from the outside, but couldn't land their forces. During these sieges, some of the Greek soldiers and sailors may have experienced some striking deja vu. They received orders to send a detachment of 60 ships from Cyprus to Egypt. Amirtaeus, the king of the marshes, had launched yet another revolt and called for Athenian aid. Athens answered in the affirmative. We know almost nothing about this second Egyptian revolt against Artaxerxes, except that it was even less popular than the last one. The Greek sources say next to nothing about it besides acknowledging its existence. The Persian-Egyptian sources don't even mention it or imply its existence. Based on the trajectory of Inaris's revolt, it's entirely possible that it never made it out of the Delta marshes and was halted along the Canopic branch of the Delta without any territorial gains. One possible consequence may have been the final extinction of the 26th dynasty pharaohs. Thaneris, son of Inaros, isn't mentioned in our sources, but he's never mentioned again at all, and Amirtaeus's heirs will take center stage in future Egyptian revolt. It's just speculation, though. There's always the possibility that Thaneris lived on happily ever after as a subordinate of Amirtaeus. The difference in the Athenian response in 451 and 450, a 60-ship detachment while continuing to focus on Salome, compared to their response in 460, redirecting the entire fleet to Egypt, says a lot about their changing priorities. Even if Amirtaeus offered the exact same deal as Inaros, sharing the kingdom, he was now seen as a much riskier investment. Cyprus was now a clear and concerted target, but if aiding an Egyptian revolt could draw Persian resources away from the island, then it could still aid Athens even if the Athenians saw the Egyptians as a lost cause. But despite the distraction in Egypt and the failure of the Persian navy to break the blockade of Cypriot Salome, the garrison within the city held out. The Athenian army could not breach the walls, and the navy could not starve them. Then, Cimon, leader of Athenian victories for 20 years, died. Different sources say he succumbed to his wounds sustained at Kidion, while others say he died of an illness. The obvious synthesis of the two is that a wound became infected, and Cimon continued to command from his sickbed until his condition worsened. Either because it was Cimon's final order, or because they had no commander and dwindling provisions, the Athenian officers ordered their forces to pack up and withdraw. However, as they were still commanding troops from the other allied cities subject to the Delian League, the Athenian commanders kept Cimon's death a secret, for almost a month, according to Plutarch, apparently fearing that his death could spark a mutiny. When the Athenians left Cyprus, they also recalled the detachment of the fleet that was aiding Amirtaeus in Egypt. 
since we hear no more about it, this seems to have crippled his revolt as well. And you may have noticed a strange lack of Persian leadership during this conflict. Despite their appearance early on, Artabazos and Megabizos just vanish. This may have been a consequence of being cut off from Cyprus by the strength of the Athenian fleet, but some historians have another idea. According to Diodorus Siculus, Artaxerxes sent orders to his commanders to open negotiations with Athens and bring this war to a close. Not a truce, not an armistice, not a convenient new status quo, an actual negotiated treaty. Enough was enough, and both sides were clearly tired of this. Thus, an Athenian noble named Callias was supposedly sent east to negotiate with the Persians and bring the Second Greco-Persian War to an end. Though the future may have seemed uncertain at the time, the Battle of Cypriot Salome was ultimately the last recorded battle in the war that began at Thermopylae 30 years earlier. But we will talk about peace another time, whether it was real, whether it was official, and what it meant for the history of Persia and the world. All that and more, it's gonna be a doozy. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. There you'll find things like my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and the support page, where you can find different ways to financially support this project. That includes one-time payments through Stripe and Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash historyofpersia, or follow the links on the support page, you can get access to monthly subscriptions that give you regular bonus content, like ad-free listening or bonus episodes, including topics like my reviews on the 300 movies. But finances are not the only way, or even necessarily the best way, to support this show. As always, the best way to support an independent podcast like mine is to get the word out, go out, tell people how much you love the history of Persia, and share it on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at History of Persia Podcast, or on Twitter at History of Persia. You can also leave a review on your platform of choice. I'm still encouraging everyone to leave reviews or ratings on Spotify, however their system works. But until next time, thank you all so much for listening to the History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line 
prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.